Welcome to Living in Time. My name is Noah Spiven, your host. We're an interview program featuring luminaries from the Stanford campus and the wider world. Today on the program, we're joined by Peter Stansky, the Francis and Charles Field Professor of History Emeritus. Professor Stansky is a historian of Britain and a senior member of the Stanford community. Professor Stansky, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Noah. It's very kind of you to invite me. I want to start off by asking you about what being a historian of Britain means to you and how that has changed over time. Because I imagine when you became a historian in the 1960s, that um, it may have meant something different than it has meant in the in the intervening decades. Well, I'm not sure it's, it's changed all that much uh, for me, for better or worse. Uh, 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 perhaps, uh, perhaps uh, I'm falling behind. Uh, well, I somehow became uh, fascinated with Britain or England, mostly England. I don't pay much attention to Scotland or Ireland or Wales, and of course Britain is used almost as an imperial term, and people say Britain when they frequently mean just England. Um, I, I, I became interested in England uh, uh, when, I, when I was an undergraduate. Uh, I had uh, written a senior essay, um, which you're now engaged in doing, uh, so many years ago. Uh, about uh, four Englishmen who had participated in the Spanish Civil War on the side of the Loyalists, uh, John Cornford, Julian Bell, George Orwell, and Stephen Spender. <clears throat> so I was interested in England, uh, but uh, my assumption was uh, I pretty much, my father was a lawyer, and I sort of assumed I would become a lawyer. I didn't, you know, when I was an undergraduate, um, and I think now, well, I don't know. You know, you can speak much better than I. Current, current graduate preoccupations. You know, of course, at the back of one's mind, uh, one was uh, interested in what might one might become. Uh, but it, I think uh, it wasn't necessarily a compelling interest. And I wasn't sure whether I would uh, become. Uh, I assumed I would become either a lawyer. I think my dominant assumption was that I would become a lawyer, but there was always the possibility of becoming an academic. Uh, but then I couldn't make up my mind, and my uh, I went. Uh, my parents staked me very kindly. We weren't all, you know, we weren't rich, but it wasn't all that expensive. Uh, I did a second BA in England at King's College, Cambridge, which of course is a great. Bloomsbury College, uh, so that reinforced that uh, that interest. Uh, but then, in fact, I thought I would do something totally different and become a publisher, uh, go into publishing. I didn't find I worked in a bookshop of sort of fun bookshop called the British Book Center in in New York, uh, but it was a sort of dead end job. I didn't find a satisfactory career in publishing. I was offered, in fact, a job at the University of Texas Press and also to do some teaching uh, uh, because Harry Ransom, the founder of the Ransom Center and the Provost or whatever at Texas, 
uh, was very Anglophilic, and he liked the idea that uh, I had English connections. But then I decided that if I were going to be at a university, uh, I'd rather be a member of the faculty. And uh, I had been admitted to the Harvard Graduate School in History several times, uh, and I had written saying I'm not coming. And I must say, um, Harvard, the Harvard History Department administration uh, treated me well. You know, they could have said, "Who needs this uh, flaky youth?" Uh, but, but, but they said, "I said I'm coming," and then I said, "I'm not coming." And then I said, "I'd like to come," and they said, "Okay, come." So actually, I started in at the second semester, not in the middle of the year. So. Um, at that time, sort of uh, political history, um, you know, I did a report that's online. It has a rather nice sort of British style uh, title. Uh, you can see it online uh, from the National uh, North American Conference on British Studies. It's known as the Stansky Report, uh, but it's it's called that because I was the chair of, of a very uh, strong committee. Uh, and it was done, at, I mean, now, I think 1999 or something, a long time ago, and uh, on the state of British history, or what's of interest. And at the moment, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, the greatest interest, quite legitimately, uh, in British history is imperial history. Um, and that might change. I don't know what might succeed it. Uh, but, you know, when I was uh, beginning graduate school, Political history uh, was was more in the ascendant, and uh, I wrote a dissertation uh, about who was to come become the leader of the Liberal Party in Britain after Gladstone's uh, resignation. Uh, but I was also interested in the the the, per, the personalities and the characters uh, of the various um, uh, possibilities. And that eventually uh, was my first uh, publication published by the Oxford University, the Clarendon Press Division of the Oxford University Press, uh, and it's called Ambitions and Strategies, the Struggle for the Leadership of the Liberal Party in the 1890s. I was on, I introduced, uh, I gave a talk at the European lunch at the American Historical Association. And I was introduced by a very distinguished historian of print, Elizabeth Eisenstein. And, and uh, she said his first book is called Ambitions and Strategies, a very appropriate title for a young historian. And, um, and then, then um, uh, I taught as junior faculty at Harvard, which was a wonderful experience. Uh, uh, and uh, I and met. What years? Were, what which years were you at Harvard? Uh, well, I entered the graduate school in February. Uh, oh God, so many years ago, uh, but it seems almost like yesterday. Uh, February 1956. So, uh, and uh, I was a teaching fellow in a program, wonderful program, uh, sort of unique to Harvard, I think. Uh, called history and literature, and and uh, that reinforced 
I mean, obviously, my senior thesis uh, about the the young men who who were participating in Spanish Civil War, they were literary figures. And you ask whether my interests have changed. Uh, I don't think they've changed that much. I mean, what I study for those interests may change. Uh, to begin with, I'm a historian. I'm not a literary critic. I'm not an art critic. And, and uh, as a historian, what my aim is to try and understand my subject England as best I can. And, and uh, the way I enjoy, and I think one should take pleasure in what one studies. I'm particularly interested in where society, politics, literature, art inter intersect. And so my, my main subjects of interest, the main things I've written about except for the first book. But even there, I was very, there wasn't an odd aspect of that, obviously, in these politicians. Uh, but, 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 but there was a sort of personality. Uh, and so in a way, the first book was something of an aberration. Um, you know, I've done some collections of, of pieces, of essays by other people, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, which you know deal in a broad range of of British history, but but uh, my central interest is George Orwell, the Bloomsbury Group, uh, and William Morris uh, are, are very much figures where where all these things intersect: uh, politics, society, and art. And so, so um, I, I enjoy um, looking in as best I can, uh, looking into all those aspects. And that's what I've uh, continued to do. Of course, more material becomes available, one interests change. And sometimes the, the, the bad word is used, uh, presentism. Uh, I think presentism, an implication is you're misguided by present interests. I think presentism is a word that should be avoided because I think it's totally that the past, you know, what's the famous Faulkner line? The past is never past. Uh, and and, and uh, the past is continually changing, it seems to me because we're looking at it in different ways. And I think that's totally legitimate. We see things that we did not see in the past. Of course, it has to be done very carefully. And, and, and it, can, it can't be reductive or, 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 you know, it has to be uh, sophisticated. It can't be heavy handed. Uh, but, 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 uh, on the other hand, you know, some people think it's not. I think the idea that that we can actually discover exactly what happened in the past. There's never actually. There's probably nothing that exactly happened in the past anyway. Even when it's going on, it's different. <laughs> and Let, it let's talk about fine. Let, yes. Let's talk about the the climate at campus in the 1960s when you came to Stanford, and 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 also what it was like for you to to join the faculty then. 
Well, it was excellent. Uh, um, well, uh, you know, there's this big new book that's come out about uh, Wallace Sterling and, and uh, the transformation of Stanford in the 50s and the 60s. And there was a launch for it uh, Sunday before uh, Sunday before last, where my colleague uh, Jim Sheehan gave an excellent talk. And he talked about the history department uh, when he was an undergraduate, when when he was a Stanford undergraduate. Uh, and you know, it was almost entirely West Coast faculty, maybe Stanford faculty, people who had gone to Stanford. Jim was, of course, and David Kennedy were Stanford undergraduates. But interestingly, Jim went to Berkeley for his PhD and David Kennedy for at Yale. And when Jim joined, uh, uh, the Stanford History Department was being transformed, and 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 as was the rest of the university, uh, becoming a university of international standing. And so the 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 rise of of. Uh, well, mostly to be maybe subject to East Coast uh, snobbery. I mean, there was an influx of, of before me, Paul Siever, Mark Mancall, uh, uh, Paul Robinson, myself. We, we, were all, uh, we were all Harvard PhDs. David Kennedy, though a Stanford undergraduate, was a Yale PhD. Uh, Stanford was acquiring a national uh, faculty, which it, it, it before it tended to have a West Coast faculty. So it's, it, it was exciting time. Gordon Craig, of course. I mean, I should have mentioned before us, Gordon Craig, a uh, Princeton PhD. Gordon Wright, who was actually a Stanford PhD but had been elsewhere. But the two Gordons, who couldn't have been more different in character, both quite wonderful people, um, but uh, uh, historians at a very high level, and 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 they had joined the Stanford faculty. So they're, 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 and this was true in other departments of the university. So the universe, so there was intellectual, great intellectual excitement Oh, well, I didn't know what it had been in the past. So there was great intellectual excitement. But then, of course, also, which didn't have that much to do with uh, that, you know, was in a separate world, so to speak, from the academic world. It was a time of incredible um, political upheaval and, and demonstrations and cr Vietnam crises and, and uh, the war. Uh, um, and uh, so, so it was a, a, a very exciting time to be be there. But also, of course, you know, the traditional business of the university um, went on, and one taught courses. Uh, one, uh, um, you know, met uh, uh, very bright and interesting undergraduates. And also the, the teaching program, we then taught five courses a year rather than now four. Uh, but you would give uh, generally give two lecture courses and, and uh, three small group courses, one for undergraduates and two for graduate students. So, so uh, one, you know, met, met students and they were excellent graduate students. 
who are wonderful. I mean, students, both undergraduates and graduate students, uh, don't sufficiently appreciate how much they teach their teachers, and 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 uh, that their interests, uh, and particularly, you know, presumably as uh, working on your senior thesis, you will know more about that topic than the person who advises you by definition. And so, so the students I work with, in terms of their senior theses, or and also the PhDs, you know, that was terrific, and that's a great advantage. I mean, I might have ended up. Uh, the job market, uh, when when I was uh, looking for a job, um, it, but you wouldn't necessarily go to a super great place, or you might go to an excellent college, uh, but that didn't have graduate students. So you know, one uh, had no assurance uh, that 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 um, one would end up at a super great place. But the contrast to now, it, it never occurred to me that I wouldn't get a job. Uh, somewhere, and and but I'm internally grateful. Richard Lyman, uh, who was the modern British historian in the Stanford History Department, uh, he and and left, and then the provost he, and president. That's right. If he, 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 it's because he went into administration uh, that that um, otherwise uh, you, you know uh, that's why I was hired. I was hired to replace him. As 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 the British historian uh, in the history department, so I was very eternally grateful to him. Now you've brought up teaching, and so I want to I want to talk a little bit more about that because right at a place like Stanford, you have split responsibilities between your research work and your teaching work, and among the students in 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 your courses, right there's students with varying interests in the material who might be taking the class for different reasons. How do you, how have you over the course of your career approached the task of teaching? And how have you, how, how, how have the different, you know, preoccupations of students uh, influenced or not influenced the way you've, you've thought about teaching? Uh, that's right. I'm afraid I, I, you're making me feel a bit uh, guilty. Uh, uh, I think I taught, and I suspect most faculties like this. I don't know if other faculty would agree. I taught what, how I wanted to teach, and 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 uh, you know I generally assigned. Uh, I gave very a course which a small group course. Uh, called a British Society Through Novels, where I read novels ranging from the 18th century Joseph Andrews uh, to the 20th century A Handful of Dust. And so I guess I made an assumption uh, that students might enjoy reading novels. But but the, the, the point of the course was to understand, both appreciate the novels as literary masterpieces, as they were, but also as I say, I keep saying I'm a historian, to use them as ways of understanding British society. Uh, 
So, uh, you know, the number, the number of students in my class uh, declined. Uh, I presume, uh, I don't think I was a super teacher. I think I was sort of an adequate plus. I wasn't a star lecturer. And uh, as you may notice, I tend to sort of wander off. I would begin my, you know, there's the student assessments. And I, I said, uh, you know, you, 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 the assessments generally say, we enjoy this class, but we wish that uh, Professor Stansky would would uh, stick more to the point. And and uh, I mentioned at the beginning, this is what people say, and I know it, and I can't seem to be able to change it. And lo and behold, when I get the assessments at the end of the year, end of the course, they say they repeat the same thing. But that's fine. Uh, uh, and you know the decline in, in the courses became smaller and smaller. But uh, I don't think I was. I don't think I think my quality as a teacher, uh, for better or worse, uh, remained the same. It's just that there are fewer and fewer uh, history people who are taking, uh, particularly uh, although the British field and my successor Priya Satya is a wonderful example of that. Uh, uh, you know, is couldn't be more. I mean, you know, doing things of current interest, but yet British history is couldn't be more stand for white Anglo-Saxon men. Even though earlier today I was on a Zoom, interesting Zoom conversation from Britain on black British history. And of course in Britain and world, you know, elsewhere, of course, there's a great interest in, in, in black you know, people interested in British history, the empire and the black, black British, black aspects of of Britain are great uh, are, are great interest. And I think, well, Noah, you probably know better than I. I think enrollment in history courses is not so bad, but there were only sixteen history seniors uh, last year who who were majors. But nevertheless, uh, as I keep saying. To the university's credit, the history department keeps growing in terms of faculty members, and 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 um, the university, uh, despite its founding principles of of practicality and science, uh, uh, nevertheless uh, is committed, I believe, um, to the idea that that it ought to be a great university. The humanities and the social science departments have to be strong. So even though history is not a major, not that many undergraduates do history, the history department at Stanford is one of the strongest in the country, uh, which is uh, you know a bit counterintuitive, considering to the what degree Stanford is identified with Silicon Valley, etc. I want to ask you about doing the history of literature and and how that might differ from other kinds of historical inquiries. Uh, what, what goes into writing writing books ab about literary figures and, 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 and well, literary I, works? I, I think like all history, uh, the archive, the document is, is, is uh, crucial. So, so um, I, 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 I think it's, it's a matter of, Looking carefully uh, at the text, and and uh, I once gave a you know in in the Stanford Overseas Program 
not the, the seminars that take place in in uh, September, uh, not the overseas program itself, which is a great program. Uh, but 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 we went, I once gave one. I gave it three times on Bloomsbury, and we met in Cambridge. And the manuscript of a room of one's uh, own is at Cambridge. And, and uh, you know, Virginia Woolf's extraordinarily important book. And uh, we would look at the manuscript, and the assignment for the students was to choose a page of manuscript and write about it. So to look at the text as carefully as possible. But also, again, I'm probably digressing, a wonderful example of how things change is one of the novels I read. It was a great novel by Jane Austen, Mansfield Park. And um, when I started to read it and study it with students uh, years ago, uh, Sir Thomas Bertram, the squire figure in it, leaves to go to, uh, to Trinidad because they had trouble on his estates. And the old view of that was it was crucial to get him off stage because so crucial things could happen without his supervision. Uh, back at his country estate at Mansfield Park. Then a famous essay by by Edward Said, uh, the, the Orientalist uh, person, uh, pointed out that, in fact, Sir Thomas was a slave owner in, in, in Trinidad and that the estate was financially supported by slavery. And again, that's a wonderful example of, of current interests legitimately emphasizing uh, uh, more uh, aspects of the novel uh, that might, might uh, have been ignored before. So I, the students would have to write short papers or give short, short reports. And I, you know, I tried to get them to go into closely into to choose of something smaller, so to speak, in the text. Um, so the techniques, I don't think, changed. Uh, but what one was looking for and what one saw changed, I think, for the students' interests and my interests uh, uh, being changed. You, you mentioned Edward Said, and of course he's he was, you know, committed to talking openly about the experience of Palestinians, and of course their portrayal and in 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 intellectual work in the what in the West broadly conceived. I, I want to ask you about what you think might be important for people to keep in mind as they engage in historical questions about about the, the present war in Israel and Palestine. And because of the fact that history, I mean, history is on people's minds. And so what I'm curious what you as, as, as a historian might, might either add to the conversation or emphasize as, as things that are important for people to keep in mind. You know, I think it's, let's see, I, have, I think I'm being rather indirect. Um, there's great emphasis now on, uh, you know, when I was an undergraduate, well, there might be some, uh, Involvement with the community, um, but, but 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 very little, uh, not too much, and, and the idea that that we were uh, 
concerned with, uh, well, maybe people in economics or political science, but certainly if you were English major at Yale or history major as I was, um, we weren't particularly concerned with public policy, with 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 changing 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 the world. I think students should uh, well, they should work hard, of course, but 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 I also think they should enjoy themselves and and intellectually. I mean, they can enjoy themselves otherwise as well. But 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 in in terms of their studies, I I think. Uh, uh, it should be the, the the shaping of your mind and the training of your mind. Uh, uh, I'm not studying. I don't think. I think sometimes I think it's lip service. Maybe it's not lip service. You know, I want to study things so I can go out in the world and make a difference. I think I want to study things for my own self development, so I can have. Maybe it sounds selfish, so I can have a better life that I can have a life that has greater interest and greater sophistication and greater subtlety uh, because because I, uh, uh, what I'm studying. Self-development uh, uh, in in, in uh, 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 intellectual sense, I, I, I think is, and of course, again, I say, I don't know, we would know as a current undergraduate, you can say whether this has any validity. Uh, my impression, based on no, virtually no knowledge, is that today's students are 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 a, a very nice combination of of idealism and cynicism, in, in that both they're interested in making a better world, which is great, but they also realize oh, cynicism is perhaps too strong a word, but you know they have to think about their future. They have to do something. That's going to make them a living. Um, I guess when I was an undergraduate, we assumed that the living aspect would somehow work itself out. Uh, I don't think there was a preoccupation uh, with with with. Uh, my, my father insisted that I do an economics course, in which I did rather not didn't do very well. Uh, but there certainly there 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 certainly wasn't. Uh, uh, you know, I didn't think in terms of taking courses that would enable my, you know, getting a good job and uh, that sort of thing. And I think that's probably changed. Uh, but I don't know. So, so what, what question am I answering? <laughs> I'm trying to answer. Well, I, I had asked about what 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 you think people should keep in mind as there's this public discourse about the history of of. Of of the situation uh, in, in in the state of Israel, yes. Yeah, so, say if I were teaching the the British course today, um, I I might pay pay uh, special attention. Uh, you know the the foundation document uh, for the state of Israel uh, is the so so called Balfour Declaration. Of what was it during the war, 1917? I want to say I'm not quite sure of the year. Where the then foreign minister, the former prime minister Arthur Balfour, wrote interestingly, in a in a letter to the grandest figure in the Jewish English community, uh, Lord Rothschild, 
and he had been partially inspired by Heim Weizmann, who was a chemist who, who had contributed to the British war effort, where he, he and in a way, it, it, you know, of course, it's a controversial document, because it commits itself to, to the idea of a Jewish homeland. And, 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 you know, some people say with some legitimacy, you know, that never should have happened, that if, the, if that hadn't happened, we wouldn't have our uh, current impossible, tragic situation. At the same time, the letter explicitly says that the, the Arab residents' interests should be protected. So, in a way, even the, ba the Balfour Declaration, I think, in a sense, uh, you know, the ultimate uh, that there should be implied, I think, I'm not a scholar of it, implied that there should be a two-state solution. So, so I guess if I were currently uh, doing British history, um, I, I would, I would pay uh, attention to that. Because the degree of support that Britain gave to Israel varied, and of course, again, an aspect that that one might emphasize more than it's done in the past, both Britain and America uh, in the 30s, uh, late 30s, uh, could have done were both very restrictive in allowing Jewish immigration. So, so, so a lot of Jews could have been saved. And also, they're very unsupportive of, of allowing Jews to come to Palestine uh, after the war. And of course, the Jews, the terrorist group or semi-terrorist group, uh, reacted and assassinated who was it, Lord Moyne, in 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 uh, the the, the in the Jerusalem Hotel. Um, so, you know, it's a difficult, uh, tragic history, and uh, it seems to me it's, uh, God knows how these horrors will be uh, resolved. Um, I would hope there would be a ceasefire. But, but, but um, you know, obviously, again, it's an example of current interests uh, legitimately shaping uh, what one would look at before. But at the same time, uh, one has to try and uh, uh, maintain some total objectivity is never possible. But but you, you obviously can't go into uh, you can't be a scholar and go and go into a, a investigate a subject with a predetermined thesis that you have to prove. Uh, you have to go where the documents and the material leads you, but obviously you're also shaped uh, by 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 your own interests and what you are like a personality. Well, I think you can have some free will, contrary contrary to some, I uh, think, uh, in determining what you're likely to be, mm. or what your I interests are likely to be. Yeah. And I have, I actually have checked out right now from the library, this book on providing a, a, a transnational history of partitions um, yeah. to which Priyasethia contributed. 
um, published oh, yeah, wait, 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 because uh, well, you might notice if it's the book, if you look, uh, there's something that might amuse you. Uh, if you look at the copyright page, if you have it right there. I know it's it's not it's it's not here. Oh, uh, actually, it, it, the publication of the book uh, was was uh, partially subsidized uh, by by. Uh, I shouldn't say, perhaps. Uh, well, I mean, it's public knowledge. It's printed in the book in small type um, by the Stansky Publication Fund for British Studies at at uh, uh, the Stanford Press, and it's a study of partition in India, which, of course, Priya Sati writes about Israel and Ireland. Uh, and again, you know, it's, it's totally legitimate uh, to. The, the, uh, I think the essays themselves are not comparative, but the book the book is. I, I want to, if we can. I mean, we, you had mentioned the the, the American foreign uh, policy and immigration policy in the nineteen thirties, but of course, the nineteen thirties is also the decade in which you were born. Um, can you talk a, a, about your your upbringing if in, in New York? Well, of course, uh, I was born in 1932, so so uh, I, I remember, uh, you know, so so uh, the late 30s. Um, I think I remember and growing up during the war, uh, you know, of course, where where Russia was an ally. Um, and you know, my my parents were. My father was a lawyer. Uh, my mother worked for. She was sort of a person, PA for psychoanalysts. Uh, you know, New York. I grew up in New York, which was wonderful. I think it gives one a sort of cultural uh, advantage. Uh, you know, uh, we I went all the time to the Modern Museum. Uh, and I think that was important. And in fact, I have by my desk uh, one of the, the things that I, I saw. Well, of course, it's, this is not by Zoom, but uh, I, it was then at the Modern Museum, uh, 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 Picasso's Guernica. And I think I, I think that that uh, was one of the reasons I was interested, even when I was growing up. Though I was four when it started, so I couldn't have been aware of it, but I was somehow aware of the Spanish Civil War, and 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 we had this wonderful uh, recording, um, sung by the Germans who had who had, were fighting uh, for against Franco, um, uh, songs of the Spanish Civil War, which I listened to when I guess I was six or seven or eight. Uh, and and uh, was influenced. So so uh, there was sort of a, my parents weren't really political activists, um, but you know they were left leaning, and and they also you know it was the time that Freudianism was. Uh, my mother worked for some analysts. Uh, um, we knew uh, uh, you know there's a great influx of of German refugees. Uh, uh, New York was a Freudian town, so to speak. Uh, so, so uh, I think growing up there was was 
important, and uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, you know, I, to what degree? Well, I say I think going to MoMA a lot. Strangely, we didn't go uh, to the Metropolitan Museum very much. Uh, I, I, I can't think. In retrospect, I can't think why. But my father's office was near the Modern Museum, and we were members. And I think uh, he gave you free admission. And I think my parents felt, you know, we have this free admission. We have to go as often as possible. Mm -hmm. But I loved it. I, going often to the Modern Museum, I think, was 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 uh, very important to me. Who, who in your youth, besides your parents, shaped you and 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 helped you become who you've become? Are there teachers who come to mind? Well, uh, you know, I had very good uh, high school teachers. Um, there was a very good English teacher, Carl Horton, who felt that my sense of grammar was incredibly weak uh, with some legitimacy. Um, I, I went to a uh, well, uh, I went to a small private school, which was not particularly progressive, but it was so sort of, it gave me a good education. Um, I guess the Yale people, um, the Yale faculty, I never took a, there was a famous course uh, of British history, which I never took. Uh, I should have taken it. Uh, but 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 uh, a man called Leonard Krieger, uh, who Paul knows about him, he was a, histo a historian of Marxism. He gave a, and there were two courses, uh, no, one course. I mean, considering this was the apolitical uh, 50s and also the, the days of McCarthyism. Uh, rather amazingly, uh, a man called Robert Cohen, who was actually a physicist, uh, gave 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 a uh, course on Marxism, uh, a, a sympathetic course. I mean, he himself was a Marxist, and and he subsequently went to Boston University. Uh, uh, and then there was a wonderful philosopher called Paul Weiss. Uh, and Yale was changing. I was admitted to Yale under a Jewish quota, which I, you know, emerged subsequently. Um, there's a very good book about that called "Join" about Jews joining the club, Jews at Yale. Uh, of course, I didn't know it, and there were a fair number of Jews in my class, but 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 it was capped. I mean, uh, um, and. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, there were an increasing number of Jewish faculty. And there was a wonderful philosopher called Paul Weiss, uh, who, who had a weekly or monthly at home. Uh, so so um, I guess my Yale teachers uh, were influential. And then also, as I say, I went to two years um, afterwards at, at, at Cambridge. And where I had very solid traditional teaching in history, I did a second BA in history from John Saltmarsh and Christopher Morris. Uh, but then I had some tutorials with who went on to be one of the most distinguished historians ever. But he was then a young fellow of King's, uh, Eric Hobbsbaum, and and then also Noel Annan, uh, who who was particularly interested in the so-called intellectual. He wrote a famous uh, essay called "Intellectual Aristocracy," 
and 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 uh, British history. Uh, I, I can't say comparatively. I don't know enough about other histories, but it's where sort of gossip and scandal and anecdotes and significant intellectual things interact. Uh, uh, which makes it uh, uh, very uh, enjoyable. And spending two years in Cambridge, and uh, and then uh, subsequently, uh, I, I met a man called John Vasey, who some years later uh, uh, married my sister, and and uh, uh, he came, went on to he died young, sadly, but he went on to be an important econ economist, and my sister, but she's lived all her life. Uh, in England, and it became a very uh, prominent. Uh, she, she probably had the largest English readership uh, for art criticism, in that she was the art critic uh, for the London Sunday Times. Uh, she wasn't a scholar; she was a journalist. Uh, but so you know, but by definition, uh, she's very much involved with the. Uh, well, she's now retired, uh, Dan. Uh, involved with 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 English uh, art world, and uh, presumably you can edit out the phone call. It's a spam call anyway. Uh, and actually, her nephew, her son, my nephew, uh, who's just visited here, is a fairly well-known uh, English politician, uh, now known as Lord Vasey of of Didcot. Uh, so so. Uh, through family, uh, by chance, you know, I have strong, though we don't have a touch, a bit of English blood, uh, uh, you know, we're of Eastern European descent. Um, we, we've been deeply involved uh, in England. Um, so, well, you were asking about earlier influences, but, you know, all my teachers, in, uh, and of course, David Owen. Uh, who, who, who was the person I did my PhD with uh, at Harvard. He was very much, and I think my style, uh, I don't know what my graduate students will feel, I, I tend to be somewhat hands-off. I mean, pursue what you want to. I think some graduate mentors feel, you know, this is the subject you should study. Uh, I feel this you must study the subject that most interests you. And and not necessarily one, but actually it's enriched my life in the sense that the the subjects of the, the grad my graduate students' dissertations have been uh, quite varied, uh, which which makes them uh, more interesting to me. And and uh, so there's no school of Stansky, uh, as far as I know. Uh, there's no Stansky thesis. Uh, other than everything interrelates, only you know the famous motto of of E. M. Forster's, uh, which again I think is is a, is a good thing. What one should aim for in one's life, uh, it's always abbreviated as only connect. But I think people tend to forget uh, the rest of the quotation is only connect the prose. And the passion, and 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 uh, I think that's a very good slogan 
uh, you know, I think you should feel passionate about about uh, as, as well as being both somehow being involved, but also detached. If you can be, uh, I think I, I think that's what what um, historians uh, should aim to do. You know, it's probably not achieved perfectly, but but or far from perfectly. But to be done as best as possible. In in our final minutes together, I want to ask you about your latest book, which was published earlier this year by Stanford University Press, The Socialist Patriot, George Orwell and War. And I also want to ask you about um, what it's like being being 91. I mean, you've been retired for some number of years now, but you're still very active. Um, in, in academic life, you're still writing. Um, yes, I'm not so sure. Let, I, uh, that might be my, it's probably my last book. Um, well, I mean, I don't feel, uh, well, as you know, I, I have mobility problems, unfortunately. Uh, but I have, I have a terrific couple here uh, that make it possible to stay in my house. Uh, I'm home most of the time. But, you know, Zoo, as I keep saying, uh, a terrific side effect of Zoo, of the pandemic is Zoom has been, uh, I've never been to so many talks and lectures as, as through Zoom. And so I, I try to keep active. Um, I don't feel that, uh, like, except for the mobility issue, which is because I had a fall many years ago and then it got worse. So I've been using a walker now for pretty much just before the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, so I don't travel, um, which is a bit sad. Uh, next weekend, there's the National Conference of British Historians. And we've been saying we might go together, but the, the American Historical Association is in San Francisco the first week in January. But even if it's so close, it might be too much of a challenge for me. Uh, so, so to that degree, uh, my my life is is somewhat different. Um, I, I fear I'm more forgetful. Uh, I do remember some things, but but you know I think, uh, and uh, it's more you know with the so-called senior moments. I mean, people forget things early and then they don't think of it. But when you when you when you think about th forget things when you're older, so oh my God, I'm losing it, and so I may be losing it. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I just uh, take up to the cliche I use. The two cliches I use are soldiering on, uh, you know, you have no choice. And, and uh, also the thing that uh, is irritating about old age is, is uh, little tasks uh, that, that Little, the little trivial things of one's life, of, of making arrangements, uh, they obviously don't go away. And somehow, because one's older, they become more complicated. And, and how to deal with them, and what to do, and where to go, and what to, uh, you know, I, I have some difficulty getting out of a chair. So I have to think, well, Maybe I won't sit down this time. You know, things that would never occur to you 
uh, otherwise. Uh, that's a, that's a sort of, but so far, not good, as they say, uh, uh, trivial concerns. <laughs> but of course, eventually, may, they, they inevitably at some point will be major concerns, but we won't dwell on that. <laughs> and we're almost out of time, but can you talk about what it means for Orwell to have been a socialist patriot? Yes, uh, one. Uh, it's more not what's unusual, although it's not uncommon. Uh, you could say that William Morris had aspects of this. The great historian Edward Thompson, who, who loved his country, uh, but somehow you don't associate uh, patriotism with socialism, and 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 Orwell was was was, was very explicit on on. Uh, that he wasn't a national, he differentiated, which I discussed briefly in the book, he differentiated between nationalism and patriotism. Nationalism means that you feel that your country is the best in the world and every other country should be the same. That's Orwell's definition. Patriotism means that you, your country is the best in the world, but you have no interest in saying that other countries should be the same. So and and the the theme of the book is is uh, and of course the, the whole of literature is, is vast and 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 uh, so I'm not claiming that this is totally originally with me, but that in the past studies of Orwell, not enough attention has been paid to it. A lot of attention, including by myself, has been paid to Orwell's involvement in the Spanish Civil War. A lot of attention, even though he died as, in 1950, uh, has been paid to Orwell's involvement in, in the Cold War. But uh, in my view, not enough attention has been paid to his, his when he was an adolescent uh, and earlier uh, to the buildup of it in the First World War. And not a sufficient attention has been paid that the empire, in the sense of Britain as the top country in the world, was never so intense as it was during uh, just before the First World War, and so that that pride in his and his education, he went to a British boarding school, prep school, so-called Saint Cyprian's, and then he went to the most famous public school, you know, which means private in England, uh, uh, in England, Eton. He couldn't have had a more traditional education. So, so, but even then, he was a bit, of, particularly at Eton, he, he, he was a bit of a rebel. And then he went on, in probably, to be a policeman, in fact, a military person, um, for five years. Uh, so, so, the importance of his his love of England uh, was, and also when when uh, during the Second World War. Um, he wrote this famous short essay about his experiences in the during the First World War, uh, but but written at the when the outbreak of the Second World War, uh, called "My Country, Right or Left," and 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 which he argued erroneously uh, that in order to win the war, Britain would have to become a socialist society. But he has a famous line which I quote in the book. Uh, you know, it's almost sort of Burkean. 
that 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 uh, England is capable, and it's one. Of, I think he says this, but it's also one of the, the, the my major themes uh, when I teach British history. Britain or England is the monarchy is a wonderful example. Is is incredibly clever in order in making as many changes as necessary as possible to achieve the aim to stay as much the same as possible. And and the monarchy, although it's now in you know with the with the emphasis on the inequities of the and to what degree the monarchy facilitated uh, bad things in the empire, is is a subject of great interest. And would, would the empire have been different if there hadn't been a monarchy? Uh, but 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 you know the monarchy is so different, uh, and that that it's been true uh, forever. I mean, the 18th century monarchy, Queen Victoria, uh, um, uh, my friend William Kuhn wrote a book about the changes in, uh, in, in Victoria's court at the end of her reign and the changes in Edward's court in, in order to modernize. But the paradox was the purpose of modernization was to preserve as much of the past as possible. And, and, uh, so what question am I answering? <laughs> what, what, what it meant for him to be a socialist patriot, but you've sort of answered, right? It, it... No, so, so uh, I, I think Orwell, uh, uh, well, I mean, he wasn't a traditionalist in that sense, but, 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 uh, uh, and it's famous in, in this wonderful essay, which I talk about in the book. Uh, he, he wrote well, a pamphlet, a short, uh, about 80 pages or something. Uh, and it, 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 it's wonderful. Again, it sums up this theme. The title of the pamphlet is The Lion and the Unicorn, which are, are the heraldic beasts that support the royal court of arms. And the sub subtitle is Socialism and the English Genius. And and you know that exactly sums it up. I don't think you you would expect to have as the main title the royal animals, the royal heraldic beasts, and, and uh, the second title having the term uh, socialism and the English genius. And then his famous uh, uh, definition of England in the book is a family with the wrong people in control. <laughs> Which again, is not quite the nation, but you can see what he means. Yeah. Well, we'll have to leave it there. That, well, uh, no, thank it's you. Been, uh, uh, I've enjoyed, I hope I've been moderately coherent and <laughs> I've enjoyed talking to you. That was my interview with Professor Peter Stansky, a retired professor of history here at Stanford. His latest book is The Socialist Patriot, George Orwell and War, published by Stanford University Press earlier this year. Bye, the red, red button. This was the third episode of Living in Time, featuring retired professor of history, Peter Stansky. 
Our first episode featured retired judge Dana Lamont. Dana Lamont became blind when he was four years old, was the first blind student at Yale, where he graduated in 1973 with a degree in math, and later ran for the California State Senate in 2020. During our conversation, we discussed his recent hospitalization, during which he nearly died. Our second episode featured Paul Robinson, a retired professor of history at Stanford just like Peter Stansky. Living in Time is meant to feature scholars, clergy, and others in conversation about their life's work, their formation as humanists. And we hope these podcasts will help you navigate your own life's journey, however old you are and wherever on your life's journey you may be. If you have ideas for the program, feel free to email me at nsveiven at kzsu.stanford.edu. Living in Time is broadcast on KZSU Stanford Radio 90.1 FM and available on all major podcast platforms. Thank you for listening.